This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, May 4th, 2018, from Slated to the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Today, amidst clarifying statements put out by top legal mind Rudy Giuliani, there was a full-throated endorsement of Mr. Giuliani's legal acumen by his boss, Donald Trump. Hear that now. He started yesterday. Uh, He'll get his facts straight. So that was going on. But there were some other actions undertaken by the Trump administration that came to light that the courts have deemed legal. But I think these legal undertakings are much, much more troublesome than what we're talking about with Stormy Daniels. So I'll start at the ending to this story, which is this. This is the uh, headline I saw today. The government of Qatar, Qatar, has bought a $6.5 million apartment in Trump Tower in New York City. Trump, of course, does not hold his assets in a blind trust. Even if he did, it wouldn't really work. I mean, the towers say Trump. Towers are Trump. They're owned and run by Trump's kids, and Trump will one day take control of all that when he's out of office. So the government of Qatar just gave Trump $6.5 million. Don't worry. It's not like they're setting precedent because this is just the latest purchase. It brings the ownership of the country of Qatar in that one building to four units valued at $16.5 million. There's more. Now, I could lay out facts and we could talk about like a web of business dealings, but people like stories. So I'm going to pitch you a motion picture. Interior, St. Regis Hotel, New York City. A silver-haired businessman in his 60s enters the room. The camera freezes on him. Titles on the screen, written as bullet points, The telemetry SFX that you know and love is heard. Here's what we hear. And while that's playing, here's what we see. Charles Kushner runs Kushner Companies. Owns 666 Fifth Avenue, the most indebted building in New York City. Convicted felon. Once sent his sister a videotape of her husband having sex with a prostitute. As soon as we see that, quick flashback. New Jersey Motel. The color palettes are yellows and green. A sun flare on the camera. Gives sense of a low-rent porn shoot prostitute in garters on the bed. Her leg is raised and we see through her legs a la Mrs. Robinson. In soft focus, the face of a Jewish looking businessman and he says the word beautiful. Smash cut, Arabian desert. A berobed Bedouin has the same expression on his face. He too mouths the word beautiful. The camera pulls back and we see he's looking at a camel. This is a camel beauty contest. Soon, an important Qatari official pats the Bedouin on the shoulder. He is also appreciating the camel's beauty, and we hold on the Qatari official's face for a second. Fast forward to the present. We're back at the St. Regis Hotel, and that same Qatari businessman we just met is extending his hand and taking Charles Kushner's. Kushner's old bullet points are still there, and one more is added. Father of Jared Kushner, advisor to the president, first son-in-law. The two men, the Qatari and Kushner, sit down for a meeting. There's glad-handing, there's pleasantry. The scene dissolves. 
Next scene, street, day, blaring taxi horns, buses in the background. Charles is screeching into his phone. They didn't go for it, Jared. I don't know what we're going to do. You needed to be in Manhattan. Apartments in New Jersey weren't good enough. Now we're getting crushed. No, they didn't loan us a cent. They didn't loan us a real. You do something. Interior office talking into a phone at Kushner Company. Spokeswoman Chris Taylor saying, To be clear, we did not meet with anyone from the Qatari government to solicit sovereign funds for any of our projects. To suggest otherwise is inaccurate and false. As Taylor speaks, we see the words that she's exactly saying form on the Newsweek website. We see the date, May 18th, 2017. Next, Kushner, same office, talking into a phone. I was invited to a meeting. Before the meeting, Kushner Companies had decided it was not going to accept sovereign wealth fund investments. We informed the Qatar representatives of our decision, and they agreed. Even if they were ready to wire the money, we wouldn't have taken it. And we see, as he's finishing that statement, those exact words appearing on the Washington Post website, May 19th, 2017. Everything I read to you, by the way, is a quote. Next, a montage of news reports. Trump, his first visit to Saudi Arabia. Next, Saudis announce blockade of Qatar. Qatar faces punishment after Saudi Arabia and Sunni states announce sanctions. A snippet like this plays. The rift continues as the Saudi-led quartet insists Qatar must meet a list of 13 demands. Oh, we got to work this part in too. Uh, and I also spoke to people who were quite emotional and uh, relieved that they'd, that they'd found their camels. And the last part of this montage, we see that Bedouin who is at the beauty contest. He's distraught. He's trying to console his once beautiful beast, and she bellows plaintively. <laughs> Okay, all that can take place within five minutes. It thrusts us into a fascinating morass of family, real estate, international law, and constitutional intrigue. We haven't even gotten into Trump's bizarrely truculent anti-Qatar stance after those sanctions were announced. But soon we see Jared smugly smiling in the background. He's talking to a cell phone. He's telling his dad, hey, if they don't want to do business with us, well, we have ways of making them hurt. We see military advisors in the U.S. freaking out. I mean, the U.S. has a huge Air Force base in Qatar, 10,000 personnel. The pressure is on. Next, another montage. Jared meeting with private bankers inside the White House. Then those same bankers are seen meeting with his dad outside the White House. Soon the president relents. The U.S. tells the Saudis to back off. Another headline showing that tensions have cooled. And then Ivanka comes into the Oval. Daddy! We just sold a $6.5 million apartment in Trump Tower. And we see that deal being consummated, and that same Qatari official is signing the paperwork, shaking hands. It will be his place of business. And the last thing we see is the Bedouin in the desert. He is happy, and his camel is consoled. All of that happened. All that I invented was some dialogue within the Kushner family. The rest is real, and it is legal. I guess it's coming to a movie theater near you before it will ever come to a courtroom. On the show today, I spiel about the date. It penetrates and surrounds us. But first, Chris Malamphy is here. The year is 1991, and we're counting down the hits. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What would you do if my heart was torn in two more than words to show you feel that your love for me is real? What would you say if I took those words away, then you couldn't make things new just by saying I love you? If nothing else, the previous recitation shows that to take a song to number one, you don't need good or even passable lyrics, but extremes more than words sat atop the Billboard charts in 1991, as did several other songs. And here to talk about all of them is Chris Malamphy. He does this on The Gist from time to time. We take a year, we talk about the number ones. But his main forum for brilliance is the Hit Parade podcast, where he goes in-depth on a song or a trend. Hello, Chris. Thanks hey for there. coming back. Hi, Mike. How are you? Where were you in 1991? I was in college. Me too. I just started. Yeah, and in fact, I remember at the beginning of 91, uh, January of 91, when uh, Gulf War One started, yeah, yeah. there was like this this moment for about five minutes where everybody thought, are they going to have a draft? And we were all panicking because <laughs> we were exactly the right age to get drafted. Of course, yeah. that, you know, it was all over within like a month. I remember thinking, they told me there was not going to be any more wars after Vietnam. What's going on? Right, crazy. Yeah, but then we realized what a good idea it was. Okay, mm-hmm. let's start with Madonna. She was still dominant in 1991, and she was the first number one hit, Justify My Love. I think the year started with probably the most radical number one hit of the year and Mm. and one of the most radical number one hits of all time. Justify My Love is... it's barely a, a song. It's it's a it's a great song, but it's it's kind of um, almost a tone poem more than a than than, a, than an actual record. And, it's a and mood. The, is it's what a it mood. Is. Yeah. Thank you. Well put. Co-written by Lenny Kravitz of all people, huh. uh, based on the the beat which he sampled uh, from uh, an earlier Public Enemy track. It's it's like a, a beat and a synthesizer and uh, Madonna uttering these um, very sexy lyrics. So now. And it's Madonna at her absolute apex, at the peak of Truth or Dare, and, you know, Camille Paglia is writing her about her. Like, she is, like, that wave of feminism and, and sex-positive feminism, and, and Justify My Love is kind of at the crux of all that. And the video was a scandal. Yeah, yeah. The, the video uh, was banned by MTV, something quite rare. You, you know something's got to be raunchy if MTV doesn't want to play it, and uh, became kind of a cause celeb such that Madonna finally released it as a video single on VHS. If you wanted to buy Justify My Love in 1991, you could buy it on Casingle, <laughs> or you could buy it as a video single so you could watch that naughty, naughty video in the yeah. privacy of your own home. That Wayne and Garth mock to on Wayne's So world. brilliantly. That. Yes, indeed, yes. indeed. Oh my God, it's Madonna! I'm not worthy! I'm not worthy! Ah! Ah! It's just a great year for female singers and belters and and musicians. There's Janet Jackson and Whitney Houston and and Mariah Carey and Amy Grant and and Wilson Phillips. Let's count all them. But let's start with Janet Jackson. Where was she in her career? Was she riding high? So her only number one hit in 1991, and it's weird for me to say only because she'd been on quite a roll, is Love Will Never Do Without You. (laughs) 
the last number one hit from a juggernaut of an album that she dropped at the end of 1989, about mm, 18 months earlier, going. Rhythm Nation 1814. She scored a total of seven top five hits from that album. Frankly, she could have had an eighth if she'd released State of the World as a, as a single. But by the time they got to Love Will Never Do Without You, they were like, all right, I think we've milked this one long enough. And this was the album that, you know, took Janet from already an enormous star to kind of sex symbol megastar right down to the video, which is uh, her, you know, showing off a toned abs on on a beach uh, in a video directed by Herb Ritz. All the Man That I Need, that was the Whitney Houston song. Someday was the Mariah Carey song. One of several, actually, Mariah Carey songs. Mariah Carey, yeah, I Don't Want to Cry, was also up there. Specifically, Mariah was in the middle of something that I believe is still a record. She had five consecutive number one hits, hmm. unbroken. That's that's still a record for um, uh, somebody starting a career. There have been other uh, five consecutive number one hits. Michael Jackson had five in a row in, uh, from the Bad Album in 87, 88. Katy Perry had five in a row from uh, her Teenage Dream album in the 2010s. But to have five in a row to start a career that is still an unbroken record so vision of love and love takes time in 1990 and now in 1991 someday uh, i don't want to cry and then later in the year from her second album uh, also called emotions the song emotions Those five songs went to number one back to back to back, which shows you how hot she was in 90 and 91. Was she being played on all genre of radio station? She was being played, yes, uh, on certainly pop, definitely R&B. Several of these were R&B number one hits and uh, and even adult contemporary, depending on the tempo of the record. So, yeah, no, uh, Mariah was just sort of blanketing all the formats at this point. Roxette was up there. They were at number one in 1991 with Joyride, which yes. I'm going to drop a tidbit that will blow your mind. Roxette have four American number one hits. Yeah. If I asked you, name me the Swedish group. Of course. The <laughs> Swedish group that has had the most number one hits in Obviously America. Obviously going to be ABBA. You would guess ABBA <laughs> yeah. or maybe, maybe you'll guess Ace, Ace of, of Base. Base. Right. Ace of Base, by the way, only had one number one hit. ABBA only had one number one hit. Dancing Queen. Roxette had four in 1989, 90, and 91. They had the number one hits of The Look, Listen to Your Heart, from the movie Pretty Woman. They had It Must Have Been Love. Yeah. And now this is their fourth, probably the least remember of the four, cute little whistling up-tempo pop record called Joyride. They really caught a wave of, again, this kind of AC-friendly, top-40-friendly mid-tempo pop that was sort of all the rage at the turn of the 90s. You know what all those groups have in common? Gender equality. Sweden. Right? That's Rock true. That, man and woman. that is true. I, I, well, Ace of Base, it was two men, two women? Two men, two women. Yeah, yeah. yeah as was ABBA. Yeah, right, and right. then one man, one woman in Roxette. Very good point. Michael Bolton charts with When a Man Loves a Woman. Less said about that, the better. Yep. Michael Jackson, black or white, there's one of these phenomenon if this was the last number one single of the year. If Madonna starts off with one that's fueled by controversy about the video, this video blew everyone's mind. That's absolutely true. Black or White was the first single from Michael's 1991 album, Dangerous. The music video premiered on, I believe it was Fox, uh, the Fox Network in 1991, uh, I think after a Simpsons okay, episode, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. It was and a big deal. It was yes. a big deal. Yeah. Tens of millions of Americans watched it. I'm not going to spend my life being a color. you agree with me? Dirt in my eye. 
And what was controversial about the video was not actually the core of the video where the song is performed. It was everything that happened at the end of the video. Apparently, it's thematically connected to the theme of black or white, which, of course, you know, it don't matter if you're black or white. It's it's uh, supposed to be a diatribe against racism. But Michael is expressing his anger by smashing up these cars and, let's say, touching himself a lot. which really creeped a lot of people out. They later had to edit the video. Michael apologized for that portion of the video. You know, you can now watch, if you look on YouTube, you can see the full-length video. But for many years, uh, the full-length version was all but banned. It, it, it wasn't shown on MTV. It, it wasn't uh, in regular yeah. circulation. Well, the if other... you look at murder rates in 91, they kind of spiked. It might have been Michael Jackson in the car. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Influencing the youth. The only other thing I'll say about the black or white video, it was the first major use of morphing. The the final shots of the video before it goes into the weird car mm-hmm. part are uh, a series of faces of different races all morphing into each other, and that was a brand new technology at the time. That was perfect. How do you do that? Marky Mark was uh, rapping back then with good vibrations. Yeah, Marky good Mark, song. a.k.a. Mark Wahlberg, uh, the uh, well-known actor, Oscar-nominated actor for crying out loud. I don't think people forget that he was originally Marky Mark. I still yeah. hear people make Marky Mark jokes all the time. I think people forget that he was a brand extension in 1991 of New Kids on the Block. His bro- Mark, which his brother was in. His yeah. brother Donnie Wahlberg is in New Kids on the Block. New Kids have basically started to fade by 91. They have some of their final top 10 hits in 91, and they're already going to be out of favor by 92, 93. But Mark Wahlberg, very savvily, styles himself as a white rapper, kind of a club rapper, really more of a pit bull type of rapper yes. rather than a hard core rapper, and he goes to number one with a record that leans heavily on a sample of a song by Loliata Holloway, so much so that they actually credit it as Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch featuring Loliata Holloway that they steal the hook of good vibrations from, and so she's the one singing that explosive, it's such a good vibration at the chorus. Yeah, so he wasn't a hardcore rapper, but he's a lot harder core than his brother's boy band. Exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, and it was it was a clever brand extension because he was just dangerous enough, you know, to score a number one hit and, and to, to sell records and, and look a little bit of a badass, but that's only in comparison to New Kids on the Block. Yeah. Come on, come on, come on! So, I started by quoting extremes more than words. Can we put this in the less said about this, the better category? I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of more than words, despite <laughs> its almost nonsensical lyrics. It's basically them writing a a Beatles song. Uh, The thing to remember about Extreme, of course, is that, you know, they featured, uh, you know, hot guitarist Nuno Betancourt. They were a metal band. They were coming out of the late 80s metal scene. And this this was what always happened with the metal bands. Their ballads would go to number one and then people would investigate and be like, wait a minute, the rest of their catalog is nothing like this ballad. You know, what makes More Than Words interesting is that it doesn't even qualify as a typical metal ballad because Typically, the metal ballad sounds more like, I don't know, Carrie by Europe. You know what I mean? Right. Screaming guitars. Yeah. There are no screaming guitars. This is not a power ballad. This is kind of, you know, it wants to be yesterday. It wants to be a quiet, almost orchestrated Beatles record. Cause This is kind of the last stand for pop metal. Pop metal has had a good five years, basically ever since Bon Jovi kind of codified in 86 that these these 
hair bands could score big top 40 pop hits. It's been a good half decade for that sound. And Extreme is kind of one of the last ones that sneaks under the door before, as long as we're talking about 1991, Nirvana and grunge come in at the end of the year and sort of make a lot of pop metal look a little old hat. Uh, So, you know, so Extreme and Slaughter, one of the last bands that year that was scoring hits, Mr. Big early the following year. By 1992, all of these bands are going to seem a little dated, but Extreme managed to sneak one under the under the the door right before the door slammed shut. And so the last song we should we should talk about was the biggest song of the year. It was on the charts the most, and it dominated the summer. It was Brian Adams, "Everything I Do, I Do It for You," in a long series of the Brian Adams tradition, where the video is Brian Adams in a location that could not possibly support plugged-in guitars, be it in a swimming pool and cuts like a knife, <laughs> be it in the uh, tundra of "Run to You." Here he is in Sherwood Forest singing Everything I Do, I Do It For You. I've never thought of that before, but you have a point. I mean, okay, the trend I was going to talk about with Brian Adams, honestly, is this is peak soundtrack Brian Adams. The yeah, 90s yeah, is the yeah. decade of peak soundtrack Brian Adams. Now, weirdly, Brian Adams had one number one hit in the 80s. He had slew of top 10 hits. His one number one hit in 1985, Heaven, uh, was strangely also connected to a movie because it originally appeared in a terrible movie that nobody remembers anymore called A Night in Heaven. Whereas, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, and the number one hit of 1991 is, of course, from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. This is also the moment of uh, peak Kevin Costner uh, around the time of, you know, JFK and Dances with Wolves when he was like the biggest box office draw among male actors and the really mostly pretty terrible movie, summer movie, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Boring and good camera angles with the arrows. That right. was innovative. That was innovative. Yes. But everything else about the movie was pretty stupid, including Kevin Costner's accent. He couldn't tell if he right. was from England or California. <laughs> but everything I do, I do it for you. Co-written by Michael Kamen, who basically did the score of the whole Robin Hood movie, and Brian Adams, and uh, produced. This is a little remembered fact by uh, Mutt Lang, uh, Robert John Mutt Lang, who had done all those hair metal bands in and the eighties, Shania Twain, and later Shania Twain. That guy's yeah. a chameleon. He can do, kind of do it all. He did Def Leppard in the eighties. He did Shania in the late nineties. He's doing everything I do, I do it for you in 91. record is unkillable. It's probably going to play the minute your listeners, your just listeners, turn this off and walk into a drugstore or a supermarket. They're going to hear everything I do, I do it for you. And by the way, if you think it's only us, it holds a record in England that is still unbroken. It spent 16 weeks, 16 weeks at number one on the British charts. A couple of songs have come close. Uh, a Drake song got spent 15 weeks at number one a couple years ago. Nothing has beaten that. So that record, wow. kind what's, of unkillable. What's good about it, Music, musically? It's, Is it just the sentiment? You could play it at a wedding or something? It's 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 a good wedding song. Yeah. It, you know, it, it came out at the peak of wedding season. Mm-hmm. 91 is a peak for adult contemporary radio. It, it It's suitable for top 40 and adult contemporary radio. And, uh, I mean, you know, husky voice guy singing love sentiments, that's kind of eternal. Uh, and Brian Adams, nobody milked that more than Brian Adams. Chris Malamphy is the man behind the Hit Parade podcast, and he comes and talks about the hits of a year. This year was 1991. Thank you so much, Chris. You got it, Mike, anytime. And now the spiel. 
It is May 4th, which means it's Star Wars Day. Ah, the dream of Star Wars, or the Strategic Defense Initiative, first championed by Ronald Re- Oh, wait, not that Star Wars, the movie. Weirdly, if you had asked most serious people in 1982 what would play a more important role in 2018 in the United States, Star Wars or Star Wars, they'd have said Star Wars, but they were wrong. It turned out to be Star Wars. Anyway, it's May 4th. Because of the line, may the force be with you. May the force be with you is kind of an odd sentiment when you think about it. Because if the force binds every living thing together and it surrounds and penetrates us, why would we need to wish it to some people at some times? Well, I guess it's like Christianity. The people who tell you God is everywhere are also the people who say, God be with you, and also with you, and also go with God. Now, the Force is invoked in many ways in the Star Wars movies. Use the Force, Luke, and the Force will be with you always. But may the Force be with you, that is the famous line. May the Force be with you was ranked as the eighth best quote in movie history in the AFI, the American Film Institute's greatest quotes in movie history list, which was put out in 2005. But it's not the greatest quote. It's not the eighth greatest quote. It's probably not even the eighth best line from that movie. I'd have gone with I used to bullseye womp rats in my T-16 back home. They're not much bigger than two meters or only a master of evil, Darth. But those lines were said once. And by the time that AFI list came out, may the force be with you, was said, well, here's all of them. And may the force be with you. May the force be with you. May the force be with you. May the force be with us. May the force be with you. 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 That's nine times, if you were counting. The AFI list came out before Revenge of the Sith. Revenge of the Sith said it three more times. And in all the other Star Wars films since then, it was said another dozen times. And that is my point. It is not the construction or the wit or the impact or the lyricism of that line of dialogue that elevates it to the list of greatest quotes. It is just the repetition. In fact, so many quotes that we think of as great quotes might be good or okay, But what they really are is often. Of the AFI's 100 greatest, we have the following. Show me the money. I need to feel you, Jerry. Show me the money. Jerry, you better yell. Show me the money. Show me the money. Attica. 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 You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? And those were quotes number 25, 86, 15, and 10. Citizen Kane's Rosebud is the 17th best quote in movie history on that list. Rosebud drives the action. Rosebud animates the things going on on screen, gives the characters a reason for being. But is Rosebud itself a great quote did you ever say anything about rosebud 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 it's not great dialogue no but it is ubiquitous in that movie it's mentioned 22 times in the script by orson wells and herman mankiewicz carpe diem dead poet society that's the 95th best quote is it a great quote or is it just mentioned a dozen times in that movie 
a movie where the quote is literally taken as inspiration by the characters who repeat it to each other in an inspirational movie. Here's another great quote. Bond. James Bond. My name's Bond. James Bond. My name is Bond. That is doubly repetitive when you think about it, because on the one hand, the name Bond is repeated, but on the other hand, it's repeated in almost every Bond film. It happens to be the first words James Bond ever says on screen. Roger Moore said it 10 times. Pierce Brosnan said it five times. Sean Connery only three. But at this point, it's more meme than quote. And that is why we, or at least the people at AFI, think it's a great quote. Soylent Green is people? Okay. Caveat emptor, I guess. But Soylent Green is people! It's people! That makes the list at 77. Not having badges. Explicable. But if you want to make the list at number 36, you're going to have to say it a few more times. Badges. We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. Gollum obsesses over Precious. If he does that once, that advances the plot. But if it's all Precious, my Precious, then it's on the list at 85. Some of these, Stella, Stella, or Shane, Shane, come back, Shane, or Toga, Toga. The quote itself is a repetition of words several times. Other times, the quote as quoted by the AFI, is just listed once, but the power of the quote is that it's said so often that it sometimes takes on a different character upon repetition, like Laurence Olivier's question in Marathon Man. Is it safe? You talking to me? Is it safe? It's what safe? Is it safe? It's just not this list or movie quotes in general that we think are good that adhere to this pattern. Repetition is often mistaken for insight in all forms of speaking. And sometimes the words are remarkable. In, in fact, sometimes the words are so remarkable you want to say them more than once. I have a dream or half a league, half a league, half a league onward. But other times, redundancy is mistaken for profundity. By my count, 30 of the top 100 quotes are repeated either immediately or a few times in the movie or in other films throughout the franchise, i.e. shaken, not stirred. And it's not just a function of this list. I looked at a list of the 100 greatest movie quotes compiled recently by The Hollywood Reporter. It has a bunch of quotes that aren't on the AFI's list, but it has a bunch of redundant quotes like, Hello, my name is Enigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Hello, my name... And so on. And of course, the first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. I would say... Of the AFI's 30 quotes that are redundant, about half do not deserve to be on the list. And I say this because a wise man once said, redundancy should not be mistaken for profundity. Redundancy should not be mistaken for profundity. One quality of impressive rhetoric is that it strikes a chord without having to become the chorus. Full stop. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname. He wants you to know it wasn't safe, it was a sled, and I don't think he was talking to you. Mary Wilson, the just senior producer, her list of greatest film quotes ever includes, they wouldn't give us a cent, they wouldn't even give us a real. She might be remembering it wrong. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, would like to note for the record, if the AFI were a little more daring, yippee ki motherfucker would definitely be on that list. And yeah, he says it every movie. The gist. 
firmly standing against saying the same thing again and again and again. Which brings me to Oom Peru Peru Du Peru, and thanks for listening.